everybody. My name is Jeff Johnson, uh, and I have the pleasure of sharing from Mark with you this morning. Um, I've been at Bethany for seven years. I've been at this campus for um, just over a year. Um, I've been married for, gosh, 15 years to Jessica in the second row there. Uh, and we've got three kids. Uh, I was a high school English teacher uh, for, gosh, I'm just going to give you all the years, just seven years of high school English teaching, uh, product management uh, in software for another seven, founded a startup, uh, some guys over in Boston. And now I do learning at a market research firm and uh, attend Bethany. So um, if you will, uh, open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 4, because that's where we're going to be spending our time today. And Dylan, if you want to throw that first set of verses up on the screen, I'll pray and uh, we'll dive in. Lord, uh, thanks for this day. Thank you that we get to open your word, uh, receive what you have for us here, Lord. We pray that this would land in us and, and take root in us. We pray that this would bear fruit in us, Lord. That God, we, we would we'd bring the kingdom as, as we're changed uh, by your scriptures. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so let's uh, start Mark 4, chapter 1 here. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And as he was teaching them many things and parables, and his teaching, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. Cool. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it, other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. And that was a hard stop for most of the folks that were there. Like the audience listening at, this, at the time, that's what they got, the majority of them. I mean, if you're familiar with the passage here, you know that Jesus goes on to explain this parable, but as readers, it's really easy for us to like slip through verses 10, 11, and 12 and get to that explanation pretty quickly. However, the majority of Jesus' audience present with him only heard the parable. No explanation. In verse 1, we see a very large crowd gathered about him, large enough to crowd him off the shore onto a boat. And then in verse 10, we see when he was alone, those around him with the disciples asked him about the parable. So time has passed, a crowd has dispersed, and of that original crowd, there are members who feasibly could have gone home with just the story. No explanation. So there's this type of spiritual practice. Um, I learned it here at Bethany uh, for prayer and scripture reading, uh, referred to as Ignatian scripture contemplation. 
It originated with Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century. So, like, in your mental timeline that you keep, like, like drop them right before Shakespeare, like, hot in the middle of the Protestant Reformation, but in Spain, not Germany. So he's a Spanish Catholic priest who founded the Jesuit movement. And with this type of contemplation, we're encouraged to read the scriptures and imagine ourselves within the narrative as characters or as bystanders within the story. It would be like reading the story of the woman caught in adultery, and as you read it, you're like imagining that you are that individual. Or you'd reread that same story, and you'd imagine that you're one of the folks around her, like picking up a rock, like ready to, ready to stone her. This is not unlike how the Jews would celebrate Passover. When they celebrate Passover, it's not let's read a story and remember, but it's, it's, it's a folding of, of past tense and present tense together, where they're taking part in the story, taking part in the events. It's like a practical wormhole that you create in your mind, getting into the narrative. There's this emphasis within this type of contemplation on sensory experience. So as you meditate on scripture, it's a way to get the, the, the story onto your nerves and, and like into your nose and, and onto your muscles. So in this case, as we read and start Mark 4, we might imagine ourselves on the beach, the sand in our 21st century Birkenstocks. Jesus is out in a boat, out there. The sea breeze is in our face. It's hot. It's Palestine, the San Diego of the Middle East. The mist is in our air. We, sm- we smell fish. And after Jesus has wrapped up, I'm at home in my first century craftsman with my first century wife. And she asks, how was your day today? Well, I saw Jesus that everyone was talking about. Oh, there's a crowd. He talked about farming. Any tips? Not really. Just the seed that goes in the ground produces fruit. And that was his point. And I get it, but I don't get it. And we all went out to see a guy in a boat talk about farming and tell us that the seed that goes in the ground produces grain. Remember, most of the crowd dispersed with just the story. And I imagine there are a number of different reactions to this parable for the crowds that left between verses 9 and verses 10. Indifference, inspiration, cynical questions, serious questions. I imagine some are haunted by this, like rolling the details of the story over in their brain. What are the birds? What are the thorns? Why sow seeds on the road in the first place? Why is this presumably professional sower sowing seeds so recklessly? (laughs) With no explanation, what what meaning would we give this story? I think the audience had frameworks for understanding the story, though. For understanding the figurative language here, I think the Jews in the audience would have been an understanding that the sower represented God. Like, that's a common image in the Old Testament. 
And the Gentiles in the audience would have had this understanding that the sower represented a teacher. It's like this Hellenistic carryover. But these frameworks don't necessarily resolve the tension created by the story. And I think that's the point. Like, parables are intended to create tension. Later in the verse, in verse 10, the disciples come to Jesus and like, can you explain this to us? Like, the tension is built in. Uh, in his book, The Scandal of the Gospel, this is my next slide, the, um, David McCracken explains it like this, that parables are not modes of instruction, but rather forms of offense, forcing the hearer or reader to crisis or collision that requires movement. Crisis or collision that requires movement. Like the crisis is built in. Moreover, the word parable comes from the same Greek word where you get parabolic or parabola. Um, maybe in high school you remember having a TI-83 plus calculator and you'd, like, you'd graph parabolas. I had a teacher tell me parables are stories with, with curves built in. The curveball is built into the story. So the tension is built in. The crisis is built in. The, the, the medium is part of the message. And that requires movement. And this movement is evidenced by the disciples and others' reactions in verses 10 and 11. Look at 10 and 11. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables. You see, they move towards Jesus. They move towards Jesus with questions. The curveball, the crisis, the tension requires a pursuit of Christ. And in verse 11, after being questioned, Jesus makes this distinction between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside, which I feel like adds even more tension to the narrative because there's a binary here and there's an in and there's an out and that doesn't feel inclusive But unlike Matthew's telling of the story in Matthew 13, Mark here points out that it's not just the disciples who ask Jesus about the parable, but it's those around him with the disciples that inquire. Those on the inside in this account aren't just the disciples. And one commentator makes this observation, in this context, the only thing that qualified one to be on the inside is that these folks pursued Jesus with questions. That's it. That was the bar. For those who are on the inside, it's those who came to Christ. Like, can you explain this farming story? That's it. Cool. They weren't indifferent about his teaching. They're not cynical. They let the word take root in their hearts. They moved closer to Jesus. They asked him questions. And so Jesus explains, and he gives more explanation Almost as if for the one who has, more will be given. So we read this explanation in Mark 4.13. 4.13, he says, Do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky grounds, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, 
but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So at a high level, with this explanation, we get a bit of a framework. The sower is the one who sows. The seed is the word. The soil are those, the people that hear the word. So the sower is the one who sows. The seed is the word. The people are the ones who hear the word. And this explanation, albeit clarifying, works to create even more tension. First of all, I am at least all of these soils on any given day. There are times when the word lands and it takes root and it produces fruit. And there are times when I don't speak up on behalf of Christ when I know I should. And there are times when I'm so deep in Twitter, cryptocurrency, home repairs, my job that the word gets squeezed out. And there are times I couldn't tell you what I read during my quiet time that morning. So that's the first layer of crisis inherent to this explanation. Because I really, really, really want to be the good soil. And it sounds like I'm going to have to get pretty close to Jesus if that's going to be the case. Second, who is this sower? And what kind of sower just sows with, like, like abandon? When I seed my lawn, I or my wife or one of us will, like, push the spreader, right, the seed spreader, and the other one of us will hold up a plywood board so the seed isn't broadcast into our garden beds or onto our rocky driveway. Like, I'm not a farmer, and I know where I want my grass seed. Or when my kids find dandelions to joyously blow their heads off, I run over to them and run them to the street and say, blow this onto the cement. Like, I'm not a farmer, but I know where I want dandelion seeds. So who is this sower? Verse 14, read it again. It says, the sower sows the word. Mm, that's all. There's not a linking verb linking the sower to any other type of noun here. Like you've got the seed is the word. The soil are the ones who hear. Jesus does not say, I am the sower. The sower is ambiguously, infuriatingly characterized by what he does. The sower sows the word. And in this context, Jesus is the sower. And in other contexts, maybe John the Baptist was the sower. And in previous contexts, Elijah. And on Sundays, it's usually Brad. And downstairs, they're sowing the word into our kids' hearts right now. And you, with your kids, when you share the gospel with them or your friends, you are the sower. The sower is the one who sows. Which means you and I are not only the soil here, but when we share the word of God we are playing the part of the sower as well. So this sower, what can we learn? Of, what can we learn from this sower? A couple of things. And this is where 
like a three-point talk begins. <laughs> the sower sows and the sower sows and he does not inspect the soil. The sower sows and he does not inspect the soil. One. Two. The sower sows and he can expect failure. Three. The sower sows and he can expect a harvest. So the sower sows and he, can, he does not inspect the soil. He can expect failure and he can expect a harvest. The sower does not inspect the soil. The seed falls in weeds on rocky ground. And the thing that trips me up when I share the gospel or share the word with my friends or the folks that I know, the folks in my sphere of influence, is that I want the soil of their hearts to be primed for the implanted word. I want my hands so deep in their hearts, clearing the weeds, cultivating the soil, checking its depth, the pH, putting up scarecrows. I get so hung up that I oftentimes don't even get to the point where I sow the seed. Like, you ever become friends with someone? Like, I'm going to become friends with that person so I can tell them about Jesus. And then you become such good friends with them that you're like, I'm nervous to tell them about Jesus. And then, like, it's this strange thing where I get so distracted by cultivating. The sower's not cultivating. He's just like, seed. Of course, the Spirit leads us. But man, I think, and maybe you relate, I get hung up on inspecting the soil and never get to the point where I share the hope that I have in Jesus Christ with the folks that I know, with the folks that I'm ministering to. We're at the Evergreen State Fair last year, and my kids were playing at one of like, the fun houses, like the mirrors and the slides, and like right across the path from the fun house was this giant tent, and it had this banner across the top. And the banner read, want to take a four-question quiz to see if you're going to heaven? And I'm like, yes, I do. So I walk over to this tent, this, this wonderful lady, I think like late 60s, mid-70s, I, I can't guess ages, met me with like this flipped card notebook, and there were four questions per page on this flipped card notebook. So she flips over the first page and says, will you die someday? And I'm like, yes. And then she flips over the second page and, she, and says, is there an afterlife? And I'm like, yes. She flips over the third page. Will you spend the afterlife in heaven? And I'm like, yes. And then she flips over the fourth page. It's a multiple choice question this time. And she says, how do you know you will spend the afterlife in heaven? And then here are the multiple choices. Because I'm a good person. Because I love people. Because I love my family. Because I give to charity. Because everyone goes to heaven. Because I keep the Ten Commandments. Or because blank, fill in the blank. Well, it's like a multiple choice fill in the blank question. Because blank is my Lord and Savior. So after passing this quiz, I'm like, so. Like, how's it going? Like, like, like we established, I'm like, we're on the same team, you know. I'm like, so how's it going? Like, anyone come to Christ this morning? And she was like, 82. And I'm like, what? 82 people came to Christ? It's 11 a.m. Like, what do you mean 82 people came to Christ? And you want to take the quiz tent? And I don't know if they're doing it right, but man, they're just broadcasting seed, and they're not inspecting the soil, and people are trusting Jesus to absorb their wrath and gift them with resurrection life. Like, that's crazy. The sower does not inspect the soil. I look at the sower, these seeds landing on weeds, falling on rocky places, in plain view of the crows. 
and think, okay, okay, there's some abandon here. Jesus told the parable in verses 1 through 9, right? Most of the soil left. Most of the soil went home. Some soil, the soil where the parable possibly took root, found him, got close to him, and asked him questions about that story. And if we're asking questions, it might just mean that the word of God is taking root in us somehow. So one, the sower doesn't inspect the soil. Two, the sower can expect failure. Like most of this parable is an illustration explaining why the seed failed to produce a crop. Three quarters of this is about failure. Here's the reasons you're going to fail. There's a lot of focus with these. And on one hand, I think it like, serves as a warning. Like, when I read this passage, I see this as a warning against like, the deceitfulness of riches, a shallow faith, and indifference. But on the other hand, the sower sows with these calibrated expectations. Like as it read Robin, again in October on a Tuesday night by myself, and um, in our family, like my wife has these Monday nights, all, all Monday nights are hers. She can do whatever she wants. She doesn't have to put on the calendar. She doesn't have to check with me. Like I got the kids every Monday. You just like go be a normal human for an evening. On Tuesday nights, I get to do that too. Like Tuesday nights, she's got the kids and I, don't, I can just do whatever I want to do. So this Tuesday night, I'm at Red Robin in the bar eating a tavern double, right? This lady sits down next to me, think late 60s, early 70s, and I get that yearning in my heart, like, you know, that like alien yearning where it's like, I gotta talk to this person. Like, talk to that person. <laughs> so I look over at her, I'm like, you surviving out there? Like we're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. You surviving out there? And she's like, yeah, making it. And then dives, just like dives into her life story. And I'm hearing about her kids. I'm hearing about her boyfriend over in Bellevue. I'm hearing about their dance lessons. I'm hearing about like the church that her boyfriend is taking her to. And I'm like, oh, church, boom, yes, okay. And I'm like, so tell me, what are you learning at church? And she's like, oh, nothing really. I just really like the music. And I'm like, okay, cool. Do you, what are they telling you about Jesus? And she's like, well, and I'm like, do you, know what, do, do you know why Jesus came? And she's like, no. So I get the opportunity. And I'm like, now I'm sitting like at her table talking to her about Christ. And after I'm done sharing the gospel with this woman, she goes, so, do you need auto insurance? And I'm like, and so as a sower, she called me so many times for auto insurance after that. I gave her my phone number. Uh, so, so many times. I think as sowers, we can sow with calibrated expectations that sometimes you're going to sow the seed and it's going to take root and it's going to be awesome. And sometimes they're going to hit you back with like, do you need auto insurance? Because I listened to your spiel, so I'm about to sell you some auto insurance now. And that was that. But I can sow with calibrated expectations. I know I've got three pretty good reasons why that seed didn't land. And maybe it did, I don't know. But I've got three pretty good reasons in that moment to not lose hope. It's the same like with your kids. Like you're, you're sharing the word with your kids and it's like, listen, you know, like heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And it's just like this, you think it's like the most intimate moment. And then they're like, dad, like if all of our neighbors flushed all of the toilets at the exact same moment, what would happen to the sewers? 
and you're, and you're like, yeah, 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 but like, what about the heavens declaring the glory of God? And they're like, yeah, 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 I'm thinking about that, but I'm also thinking about this toilet thing. <laughs> and, and that gives me context. I don't lose hope. Because i got three reasons why sometimes the seed just doesn't hit. Whoa, I'm not used to this, sorry. Um, cool. In 1 Corinthians 3.6, I don't know, did I give you that one? Is that one in there? No, okay. In 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul addresses the growth of the church, of the church in Corinth. And um, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Like, we do the work, the sower sows, God gives the growth. And I see a need here, though. Like, I see a need in that. Like, I see reason to, to, to cuddle up real close to Jesus and plead with him on my behalf and on the behalf of those to whom I'm ministering. But please let your word take root. Like, please let it bear a crop. You give the growth. I am so wholly dependent on you for this work. But here in Christ's explanation, we've got reasons why the word is sown and does not produce fruit in our lives and in the lives of those to whom we are ministering. And so we can sow the word with calibrated expectations. Three, and this stands in like direct tension to the last point, right? The sower can sow and expect a harvest. The sower sows and can expect a harvest. And this is, I feel like this is a hope that we abundantly need, that we need, sorry, we absolutely need to lean into. The sower does work, and that work does produce fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It's like working at a startup. It's like you're, you're like, I'm going to do this thing in the world. I'm going to build this product, start this company, execute on this software, and you have this playbook of all the ways you're going to fail. And once you get past those, it would be so nice as, as, as someone who's doing that work to be like, oh, but I can know this is going to pay off in the end. Like, maybe not with the starter, but here we can. We can know that it's going, there will be a harvest, that the work yields at the end. So he does the work, and there is a harvest. And sometimes it takes like this, like holy, like this sanctified, this holy imagination to look forward and hope that our labor yields fruit. Like, that's another prayer. Like, oh, God, give me a holy imagination to see your word take root in the lives of my kids. Like, I need to imagine what that looks like sometimes. I look at, I look at kids in this congregation and go, that they help paint the picture of what it could be six years from now in, in, in my kids' lives. And so they help frame, like, oh, my kids could be this. The work of the Lord isn't in vain. And oftentimes, I need the Lord's help to imagine that far ahead with my coworkers, with my friends, with my own life. I think this characterizes Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees heard, the Jews heard, the Gentiles heard, and there were harvests in each of those respective groups, from Nicodemus in John 3 to the disciples to centurion guards like a holy imagination. We need that for the hope. What these folks could look like with the fruit of the kingdom of the work in them. I cling to this verse in Galatians uh, 3, and it's verse 20, when I, when I need that holy imagination to hope for harvest. Um, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine, 
according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So, as the word is sown in you, and you sow the word, I encourage you, broadcast the seed bravely. Maybe even with abandon. Two, there are a lot of forces at work to keep it from taking root. Three, there will be a harvest. So I'm going to close, I guess, today, teaching today, um, in prayer. I'm going to pray this old prayer. Um, from a, it's a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision. I think it hits some of these notes pretty well. So if you will, bow your head with me. Thou great I am, I acknowledge and confess that all things come from thee. Life, breath, happiness, advancement, sight, touch, hearing, goodness, truth, beauty, all that makes existence amiable. In this spiritual world, also, I am dependent entirely upon thee. Give me grace to know more of my need of grace. Show me my sinfulness that I may willingly confess it. Reveal to me my weakness that I may know my strength in thee. I thank thee for any sign of penitence. Give me more of it. My sins are black and deep and rise from a stony, proud, self-righteous heart. Help me to confess them with mourning, regret, with no pretense to merit or excuse. I need healing. Good physician, here is scope for thee. Come and manifest thy power. I need faith. Thou who hast given it me, maintain, strengthen, and increase it. Center it upon the Savior's work, upon the majesty of the Father, upon the operations of the Spirit. Work in me now that I may never doubt thee as truthful, mighty, faithful God. Then I can bring my heart to thee full of love, gratitude, hope, joy. May I lay at thy feet these fruits grown in thy garden. Love thee with a passion that can never cool. Believe in thee with a confidence that can never stagger. Hope in thee with an expectation that can never be dim. Delight in thee with the rejoicing that cannot be stifled. Glorify thee with the highest of my powers, burning, blazing, glowing, radiating, as from thy own glory. Amen.